0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today we get to hear a lecture given by our colleague, Dr. Paul House, wonderful Old Testament scholar. He's also served as the Associate Dean of Beeson Divinity School. He's served as the President of the Evangelical Theological Society, a world-renowned leader in the Lord's Church. And he's going to be speaking to us on a topic. is delivered in Hodges Chapel on how martyrs overcome. Dr. Smith, can you tell us about this?
1: This is a picture of intertestamental interpenetration. He's using psalm two daniel seven thirteen to fourteen romans eight thirty five to thirty seven isaiah sixty five and others and uh interpenetrating the fabric of the text that he's drawing from revelation twelve one through seventeen uh, he is teaching us it's didactic uh he wants us to learn and this is his statement here's what we need to learn if we learn nothing else. those who are Accused by Satan, overcome by, one, the blood of the Lamb, two, the word of their testimony, and three, having not loved their lives even unto death. In other words, loving Jesus more than their life. That is his, his structure. His harmonic approach to tried and true Ex- explanation, illustration, application. That's what he does to let those uh, three cords that are tied together and are not easily broken uh, set for us the approach he's taken. He intersperses application throughout the sermon, especially in the end, because in the end he's going to bring up uh, the martyr, May Heman, and let her life be an expose of what it means to overcome as, as a Christian. Suspension in terms of, at the end, bringing in her life, but also celebrating her life by saying that Christ will give us victory and in the end his victory will be complete. Uh, we ought to look at the, the doctrines that he brings up. Christus victor, Christ is victorious, ascension, Satan, uh, the Lamb of God, revelation, resurrection, the Messiah, Israel. It's it's ingenious, particularly when he says this, Dean George, and I respect this. We ought to have respect for Satan's power. He's not to be toyed with. But we ought to have reverence for Christ's lordship, which is a huge uh, truth. It is a message about triumph, God's son triumphs, God's angels triumph, and then God's people triumph. And he closes the message with amazing grace when we've been there 10,000 years, to show eschatologically that the triumph of Christ will be complete upon his return.
0: This is a very moving sermon, and listen to the end where he really brings in May Heyman. You know, she is one of six martyrs memorialized in Statuary in Hodges Chapel, a nurse, an Anglican, who was put to death by the Japanese during World War II, faithful unto death in her witness for Jesus Christ. It's a great sermon by our colleague, Dr. Paul House, How Martyrs Overcome. Let's listen.
2: Well, if you will, keep your Bibles open to Revelation 12 if you didn't bring a copy of God's Word with you. There's a Pew Bible there, and I believe it's on page 1034 that you can find our text. And I hope you will join us there. It's always a privilege to bring God's Word and to do it uh, before friends and colleagues is a special honor, and to all of you I say who are staff and students, friends, and community members of Beeson Divinity School and of the university, uh, I love you, I'm grateful for you, and it is uh, always a special time when we come together. You have a sermon outline beginning on page six of your handout. A few of you took a class with Dr. Webster and I last fall, and you know that I always give handouts at the beginning of class. He gives them at the end of class. Um, I don't know that there's anything special about this handout, other than I hope you will follow along in it together. We will understand more about the Word of God as the life of May Haman illustrates it. So we gather today, as we always do, to hear God's word read and preached, to praise God, and to ask God for what we need. And today we use the life of our Australian sister, the martyr May Haman, as a touchstone for this learning, praying, and asking. I'm particularly happy to be asked to be part of this service because one of the great blessings of the last several years of my life has been becoming acquainted with Evangelical Australians and their writings. That began a bright day in 1999 when a smiling fellow came into my office in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. He had a very pleasant uh, Sydney accent and he told me that a Baptist brother that I knew, Reverend Mark Dever, had said he should talk to me if he went to Ambridge that we would discuss Old Testament and biblical theology and we had a lovely talk. I asked him, since he was at that time at the principal of Moore Theological College, when did evangelical theology come to Australia? That basically exhausted my knowledge of all things Australian when I asked the question He said, and I might say with more vehemence than Peter Jensen is used to speaking, he said the first chaplain on the first fleet of the first prisoners who came in 1788 was an evangelical clergyman. And that clergyman, Richard Johnson, saw himself as a missionary to convicts and to aboriginal peoples. He was an evangelical recommended by John Wesley, John Newton, and William Wilberforce. And so really, biblical theology, Bible-believing evangelicalism with a social conscience was planted in the place from the beginning. Regardless of whether or not they should have been there, that's who went there. And by the way, there there were no houses on the first fleet going to Australia. However, my wife's maiden name is Oldfield. There were at least three of those. All of them sent, I'm sure, on trumped-up charges. But there it was. And by the way, they they were impressed by that in Australia for her to have uh, ancestors who were on the first fleet. So I've become acquainted or become more aware of Australian writers, and I list several there for you, so that you will learn them, read them. And I've become especially appreciative of the great devotional expositor, Marcus Lone of New Testament scholars like Leon Morris, Old Testament people, like J. Thompson, Bill Dumbrell, theologians like Peter Jensen, Donald Robertson, D.B. Knox. And I've come to pray for sister seminaries across Australia. And I list some of those there. More in Sydney, Queensland in Brisbane, Ridley in Melbourne, Trinity in Perth. We have brothers and sisters in what is so far away from where we are that as my wife said when we visited there, we were watching the weather report She said she knew we were a long way from home when they said today's weather will be affected by tides from Antarctica. So they feel a bit isolated there. And perhaps they get a little stir crazy and want to leave their continent. So lately I've been reading about some of those Australian missionaries. Frederick Barker, who came from England to be a missionary bishop. Alf Stanway, who went to Africa and participated in Central Africa and Tanzania and the great revivals there. And, of course, today, Mayheman, The martyr whose likeness graces the pedestal right on the other side there, so many of you cannot see her likeness. Her life and death link Australia to the great cloud of witnesses who have given their lives for Jesus, My sermon text is from the book of Revelation. Marcus Sloan comments, this might be called the book of the overcomer because of its emphasis on believers conquering, overcoming, and of Jesus overcoming. And he adds that this great theme is most evident in chapter 12. And so this passage comes at the central part, the central point of the book of Revelation. Revelation. Leon Morris writes, this group of visions is connected with the troubles of the church. It is, of course, true that the whole of Revelation is written to a church which faced persecution and that whatever else it may be meant to do, every section of the book is designed to help harassed believers. But especially this is this so with the section to which we now come. It stresses the important truth that God has decisively defeated the devil. Satan opposed Christ from the beginning and tried to destroy him, but without avail. The evil one has been cast out of heaven. His power on earth is, to be sure, terrifyingly real to believers, but this is not because he is triumphant. It is because he knows he is beaten and has but a short time. Let the church then take heart. She will have her martyrs, but ultimate triumph is sure. So we have a central text of a book about overcoming and how martyrs overcame. And so I hope as we look at this text, the sermon will deal with some vital life questions. We stand under the text that God has given us with a posture of obedience, of giving ourselves to it. And while I doubt there'll be any books written in the future on the martyr's secret to a happy life, might not hurt us to ask some vital questions as we look at this. What's going on in the world? What does this text tell us about what's happening? How did the martyrs do what they did? How did they, how did they achieve this? What's going to happen next? Well, this passage tells us that the, the answer to these questions begins and ends with God's triumph. God's triumph. For it's God who makes certain in this text, the first six verses, that his son triumphs. In the next few verses, that his angels triumph. And finally, that his people triumph. These triumphs occurred despite Satan's vicious, determined efforts. You can say many things about Satan. That he is a quitter is not one that you can say accurately. As the basketball announcers often say about a team, you have to beat that team, they won't quit. And while it's odd for me to find something to admire in the devil, it's all misplaced admiration and activity of course, but we better know that any glib sayings about the devil and how easily he is defeated and that sort of thing is just plain silly. I don't think the devil's particularly afraid of me. I think, however, he's quite aware of my God. So these triumphs occur despite his vicious, determined efforts. And I think all three of these triumphs are vital for perseverance today. And in this sermon, I'm going to go more quickly over the first ten verses to spend the bulk of the time on the last. But we see in the first six verses the Son's birth and ascension, God's Son victorious. Because in the first three verses we have this woman who I think represents the people of God, the believing people of God through the ages, who God considered Israel and his bride, say, in Jeremiah 2 and in Hosea 1 and 2, that faithful bride who went with him into the wilderness Lady Zion and her children in the book of Isaiah. And the woman is about to give birth to this son. She's crying out in birth pains. The time has come. And yet there is danger for in verse 3, you have a great red dragon, seven heads and ten horns. She has the sun and the moon and a crown of 12 stars. Such as... Joseph's envisioned bowing down to him in Genesis 37. She has a complete package of power. This dragon does not. Seven heads, ten horns, not complete, but quite powerful. And in verse 4, it says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Does this mean that he was taking that many angels with him? that many believers with him, or is he just so powerful that as he sits and his tail wags, he whacks out a third of the stars? Regardless, he is not anything to be trifled with, laughed at. This is a powerful enemy. There is this woman and the dragon, and then in verse 4 and 5, the birth of the Messiah. His tail has swept down a third of the stars. He stands before the woman so that he might devour the child. She gives birth to a male child. And in an allusion to Psalm 2, where the nations are imagining that they can rattle the swords and somehow not serve the one God has chosen, and God laughs and says, you'd better kiss the son, you'd better know, because I have given him the power to rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is the Savior. This is the Son of God. And he's waiting to devour. And in a great statement of telescoping, as you'll ever read, the child was caught up to God. Birth, teaching, death, resurrection, ascension, all in one statement. And there he is. Ascended, as Acts 1, 1 to 8 describes it, sitting at the right hand of the father, the way Stephen saw him when he was martyred. He is the one that Daniel 7, 13 and 14 describes as the one to whom the ancient of days gives the kingdoms of the world. The son is at the hand of the father. And the mother retreats for protection, and we will pick up her story in a few verses. But the wilderness is the place God took Israel to teach them, to protect them. To love them. And he takes her to the place of protection. Despite the dragons watching, the sun is on the throne. God's son is victorious. And verses 7 to 10. A war in its result. God's angels victorious. The armies of God are going to do battle with the army of the dragon and his angels. Verse 7. And because of the power of the angels, the victory of the son, the dragon is defeated. There's no more place for him. The son holds the place apparently that he wants and cannot have. The kingdoms of the Lord will not be given to the great dragon. They will be given to the one like the son of man, the one that has ascended to the right hand of God. And the angels win a complete victory over the one described in verse 9 as the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And then we're told in verse 10, he's also the accuser. Now, that's quite a task he has, isn't it? It's a little bit like making your local meth dealer the DA of the county. I will deceive you, I will draw you into sin, and then I will prosecute you. I will accuse you satan is tough he's determined he doesn't quit and he cheats and we always when we sin underestimate what he's up to but the text says he is defeated there's no place his angels there's no place for them And verse 10 is one of the great declarations of the Bible. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day or night before our God. Who is it who can separate us from the love of God? We read no one can. The accuser is defeated. And the kingdom of God, where God dwells with his people in the absence of sin forever, has been secured. Later in Revelation 21, it will say, everyone who loves Christ is called there. And there's a new heaven and there's a new earth. And there's no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. For all these things have passed away. In a quotation and elaboration of Isaiah 65. The war has been fought. The angels are victorious. But then an ominous statement in verse 12. We're going to go back to verse 11. But lest we get too excited, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the battle is still raging here on earth. I would spend the rest of my time on the third point. There is an assault and God's protection. God's people are victorious. Now, Lone has said that the the central passage of the book about overcoming is chapter 12, and the central verse of the central chapter is verse 11. Here is what we need to learn if we learn nothing else. Here on earth, those who were accused by Satan have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. This is the martyr's secret of a happy life. This is how they overcome. This is how they conquer. This is how we too may conquer and overcome. There will be vicious opposition, but by the blood of the Lamb. I don't know John's age when he wrote Revelation or when he wrote his epistles or when he wrote the Gospel of John. But if you keep your place in Revelation, turn back to John 1, you'll see this issue of A lamb dying for the people has been on his mind for a very long time. It goes clear back to when he first found out about the things of Christ. And so if you go to John chapter 1 and verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 29, you go clear back to the testimony of John the Baptist. And by the way, that word testimony, as we'll see, is a word, this is the witness. This is the martyr. This is this is. The statement, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Verse 29, the next day he saw John coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It happens again in verse 36. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples who'd been following John heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Back to Revelation. Go to chapter 5 and verse 9 and 10. The Lamb has appeared earlier in this book, hasn't he? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. This is the work of the Lamb. In chapter 7, verse 14, asking who are this great number of believers I said to him sir you know and he said to me these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb Christ has died for sinners and there has been through the years and there will continue to be I think until Jesus comes discussion of what this means what does atonement mean is it substitutionary I would answer it is is there a penalty to be paid I would argue there is. There is a penalty for sin. And sin is personal. And going clear back to the Old Testament. When you read that on the Day of Atonement or any other day, the believers have to come, they bring this animal, they lay their hand on the head, confess their sins, and the animal's killed. In fact, it's not killed. They have to participate in the killing of it and the giving of the sacrifice. It's personal. In case you don't know, in a rural economy, in an agricultural economy, you know, this was expensive. I remember raising calves. As I've said before, why would God accept a sacrifice of a calf? Only because he would say so. There is no moral goodness in a calf. No particular intelligence. They are smarter than chickens. They are smarter than turkeys. But when you look deep into the eyes of your average calf, there is no one home. (laughs) Yet God required it as a penalty, as a fine, if you will, that cost and was in our place. You say, wow, those Old Testament people had to be humble. You mean you're going to fork over a bird or a calf and say, yes, that's in my place. That's about my brain power, I can tell you. I can I I can only say he took it in their place, and now how much more so should we be in awe that God's only Son is the Lamb of God who has died for us to take away the penalty, to take away the power, to take us from the presence of sin, that he has died for us to remove this by the blood of the Lamb, by something done for us, by something done outside of us. We overcome and the martyrs overcome. That's why the first reading today from May Haman's life... Was about her testimony of coming to Christ. Before she did anything else, before she became a missionary or a martyr, she was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. She had already overcome. She had already conquered sin and death and hell because it had been done for her. What about you? It would be very important for a seminarian to know Jesus. We actually ask you that when you apply here, don't we? Unless you think, well, isn't that pro-forma? Well, I hope it will become that. But the founding pastor of Briarwood Church, who's had a great ministry, he, he gave testimony the other day in church, he was converted as a seminarian. So I would ask you, have you given your life to Jesus Christ, realizing in humility that He took your place, died for your sins? We also welcome lots of community members here. If, you're, if you've come as a guest of our place or you're an undergraduate, is this true of you? Have you given your life and come to a place where you realize you cannot save yourself and humil- humiliation of all humiliations, God's son had to do it for you. We overcome by the blood of the lamb, by something done for us. But then he says, by the word of their testimony, the word of their witness. And I will just remind you that John the Baptist was a witness and gave testimony, but then stay in Revelation, chapter 1 we turn. The word of their testimony, the martyrs, the ones suffering, the ones jailed, the ones who died, chapter 1, verse 2. John identifies himself as God's servant, verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And for his pains, of course, he has been imprisoned. Chapter 2, verse 13, common theme in the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. To the church at Pergamon, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. What is the word of their testimony? Holding fast to the name and character of Jesus, not denying his faith, his teaching... Being a faithful witness. Confessing that Jesus is Lord even to the loss of life. The word of the testimony of the saints in the book of Revelation is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Chapter 6 and verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And of course, at the end of chapter 12, who is Satan chasing but those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus? If you would, turn back your handout to page 4. When May Haman was established as a missionary and World War II began, they expected and received an invasion of the Japanese army into New Guinea. Bishop Philip Strong put forth this instruction to his clergy and missionaries. As far as I know, you're all at your post, and I'm very glad and thankful about this. I have from the first felt that we must endeavor to carry on our work in all circumstances, no matter what the cost may ultimately be to any of us individually. God expects this of us. The church at home, which sent us out, expects this of us. The universal church expects it. The tradition and history of missions requires it of us. Missionaries who have been faithful to the uttermost and are now at rest are surely expecting it of us. The people whom we serve expect it of us. Our own consciences expect it of us. We could never hold up our faces again if for our own safety we all forsook him and fled when the shadows of the passion began to gather round him in his spiritual and mystical body, the church in Papa. Our life in the future would be burdened with shame, and we could not come back here and face our people again, and we would be conscious always of rejected opportunities. Third paragraph. Know, my brothers and sisters, fellow workers in Christ, what other others may do, we cannot leave. We shall not leave. We shall stay by our trust. We shall stand by our vocation. We know not what it may mean to us. Many think us fools and mad already. What does that matter? If we're fools, we're fools for Christ's sake. I cannot foretell the future. I cannot guarantee that all will be well that we shall all come through unscathed. One thing only I can guarantee is that if we do not forsake Christ here in Papa, in his body, the church, he will not forsake us. He will uphold us. He will sustain us. He will strengthen us. And he will guide and keep us through the days that lie ahead. Let us trust and not be afraid. Remind me a bit of reading once about General Eisenhower giving a pep talk to paratroopers prior to D-Day, saying total victory is what's required, knowing that very few of them would come back. And these missionaries stayed. The word of their testimony was that they were completely committed to the Christians that had come to faith in Papua New Guinea. And eventually, when Mayhaven died, she was betrayed by someone who was angry that the church was there. Well then, the word of the testimony. Jesus is Lord. This is the worldview that we must have. By the word of our witness, by the word of our testimony, the text says they overcame, they conquered the evil one, and so do we. And also by not loving their lives more than their witness for Christ. They overcome by an internal motivation. You see, it comes from outside of you, the blood of the lamb. It comes from out of your mouth, the testimony of your word. But you also have this internal motivation that says, what do you love most? What is it that you love so much that if you always have that, no matter what else is lost, you are, you are alive, you're well. Do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you believe that Jesus raises the dead? If Jesus is Lord over death, why prize life and its wonderful bounties? Family, home, ease, books, basketball, bread. I won't go on with the bees, but I could. Brothers and sisters, what do we love most? Do we love Jesus most by not loving their lives more than their witness for Christ? They overcome the evil one because what can he do to them? What can he do? It's like the old Monty Python movie a little bit. You remember this one where the guy, you know, eventually he's menacing someone and they fight and he cuts off one arm and he still fights. He cuts his arm. Eventually he's just lying there armless and legless, still saying, I'm ready to fight. And the guy asks, what are you going to do? Bleed on me. I always wondered in these spy movies why people go along so docilely just because someone points a gun. I finally saw the movie I wondered, that I'd been wondering, wanting to say all this time. I said, point a gun. And the guy told him to shut up and he, he slapped him for telling him to shut up. And he said, Yeah, I'm you. He said, Yeah, but you can only kill me once. Go ahead if you're going to. But I won't be insulted. And then he finally said, There's the punchline. You need to find out, Sonny, you can only kill a guy once. Well, go back from the frivolous to the serious, they loved their own lives less than they loved Jesus. Where is it with us? Turn back to page five in your handout. I want to bring the, the story to illustrate this text. After his instruction of the missionaries in January 1942, Bishop Phillips suggested to the two women at the mission, Mae Haman, a nursing sister, and Mavis Parkinson, a young teacher, that in view of the invasion of the territory of New Guinea, farther northwest, they should move to an inland station. Stay, but don't stay where you are. But with tears in their eyes, they pleaded, don't make us move from here, let us stay here. When he said they did not know what might happen, they replied, we don't mind what happens. The bishop replied that terrible things could happen, worse even than death. They replied, we are in God's hands. If he calls us to suffer, we're ready to suffer. We must do his work. May Haman asked, what will the sick people do in the hospital if I go? Mavis Parkinson asked, what will the children do if their teacher leaves? July 21st, 1942, Japanese troops began bombarding Gorna. Their people leaving, May, Mavis, and Reverend James Benson fled Gorna, hoping to reach another mission outpost. Letters written by May and later recovered revealed they were cared for by Papin Christians until about August 11, when they were once again forced to flee. And by the way, these letters are so, they're beautiful in how unextraordinary they are. No big statements about how we're going to die for Jesus. No grand gestures. What was it then? Simple daily faithfulness. Morning prayer, evening prayer. Having meals, washing up for meals. Taking care of one another. Constant daily faithfulness. That's what the letters show. The details are sketchy, but the women were captured. They were held overnight and taken away the next day. According to a man claiming to be a witness, soldiers took the two women to a nearby plantation where there was a fr- freshly dug grave. One of the soldiers tried to embrace Mavis. When she fought him off, he plunged the bayonet into her side. May screamed and covered her eyes with a cloth. Another soldier thrust his bayonet into her throat, and the bodies were dropped into the grave. The women's bodies were later recovered and reburied at the mission station. They say, that's a stark thing to read to people. It's a stark thing to read to people. It's a stark thing to have happen, and it happens every day of our world somewhere. And so, we'll come back to the rest of that. But from verses 11 to 18 I draw, not only did they overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by not loving their own lives unto death, but we survive today by God's protection of mother and siblings. Satan's out after those who trust in the testimony of Jesus and keep God's commandments. I hope that's everyone in this room. I pray that it is. And the text is clear. Satan's trying to do away with them. This bit about him trying to flood the area, I think it's, it's an old battle uh, ploy. But it doesn't work because God has protected them. He has carried them away as he did in the Exodus to protect them. You might ask, well, if God's protecting us, what would happen if he didn't? Because people die. People suffer. And yet I want to say to you, God protects what matters most, and that is our testimony of salvation through Jesus Christ. Satan cannot take away our soul, he cannot take away our resurrection, and he knows he is lost. Everywhere where he sees a regimental detachment like this, he knows he's lost. Everywhere I think that he hears someone under the power of the Holy Spirit speak in tongues, he knows there's a foreign army afoot and he is lost. Every time a demon is cast out, every time a soul is saved, he knows he is lost and he will fight very hard. But we triumph because God raises the dead. How is it with us? I want to say that I've not known martyrs, but I've known some others who confess the faith. There are people on our faculty and staff who have suffered greatly and yet confess the faith. People who have lost children. People who've had spouses walk away. People who've endured a great deal of financial deprivation. People who have sacrificed much and yet they still confess Jesus. And such are some of you. I know in our student body these same things happen, and such are some of you. And the day, I pray, will not come, but it may come for many of you in the ministry. Where you hear, we want you gone. Where you hear from a spouse, I won't stay. Or when you hear those awful words that a loved one is gone, I believe that you will confess by the word of your testimony That Satan may do his worst, but you still believe. You will conquer by the blood of the Lamb, the word of your testimony, by the protection, because God will protect you to the end. No one can pluck you out of God's hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. So what do we take away? Back to page 5. The last paragraph. They loved not their own lives unto death, Vivian Redlich, May's fiance, was killed by Japanese soldiers August 6, 1942, just days before May's death. I like to think that if indeed she did cover her face to not see the one who killed her when she uncovered her eyes, she saw the Lord Jesus. And much to her surprise... She saw her fiancé there. She did not know he was already gone the last days of her life. When news of his martyrdom became known, David Hand, a young priest working near Vivian's old home in England, was inspired to take his place. What shall we do? We shall take the place of the ones retiring, we shall take the place of the ones dying, we shall take the place of the ones martyred, we shall step forward, right? We will not do so thinking that one can easily be a martyr, we don't think that one can easily be a pastor, we don't think one can easily be a father, a husband, we don't think one can easily be a professor, though I would rather be a professor than a student. We will take their places. And if we do, the day will come where at least some, maybe unspoken, maybe unheard, maybe never declared, maybe totally unknown, will feel about us the way we feel about those who have gone before. And so when I think of overcoming, I don't see it solely in the past, though I do see it there. I see through an operation like this and through all of our local churches and our parachurch organization, everything else, I see Satan losing for a very long time. Right here until the day comes when the glorious victory of our Lord and Savior will be complete. How about us? We're going to close our service by singing of God's amazing grace and of His leading us through 10,000 years.
0: You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, Beesondivinity.com.